You're listening to Sport Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. They don't need to pay for a big glass building in the middle of Soho or Farringdon. You know, we're an efficient operation that is designed to be flexible and nimble. If you're a new type of agency, a lot of these guys are well covered. The challenge there is that you need to bring something of value and you've got to be able to deliver it quickly. Personally, I sleep better at night knowing that someone's paid me one pound and I've delivered them two pounds. Hi there. Now, starting a sports digital agency is a dream for a lot of people. And arguably, there's never been a better time to set up on your own. You're your own boss, you can be creative, you're working in sport, of course, and there's the potential to make good money. On the flip side, the responsibility is entirely on your shoulders, and right now, the competition is particularly intense. Luca Bassaro took the plunge five years ago when he set up WePlay in London, and in this podcast we talk about how he assessed the market before launch, the character lessons he's learned, how they've had to change their offering, the crucial art of pitching for business, and the qualities that brought them the Football Business Agency of the Year Award in 2017. You can find Luca via the links in the show notes. You can find my links there as well. I'm at Mr. Richard Clark. Also, as an experiment, I've set up an Instagram account for the podcast, Sport, Digital and Social, all spelt out. Feel free to chat to me there. Anyway, let's crack on and let Luca do the introductions. Luca Massaro, Chief Executive of WePlay, digital sports agency based in London. Uh, We are an award-winning independent digital marketing specialist for the sports sector. Essentially, we are digital marketing specialists by trade. That allows us to understand the conversion funnel, how to reach audiences, how to engage them, what data we need to capture to understand about the audiences we want to engage with, and then how we funnel those people through to some form of transaction, conversion, etc. We work in the space of brands, rights holders, and broadcasters. So our objective is to help them to better reach and better drive uh, transactions, both what we consider to be measurable commercial returns, which are anything from direct sale right the way through to indirect commercial returns, which is media value and sponsorship sales. Uh, an overview of the types of businesses we work with ranges from global rights holders like FC Barcelona through to large brands like Red Bull, Yokohama, uh, mass participation uh, such as Ironman, uh, the governing bodies like England Hockey and Rugby League and event companies like Six Day Track Cycling and Electros. We are five years old, so the background people may be familiar with uh, my time at, at Chelsea Football Club. After leaving the football club, I went into consultancy. That was where you and I first met, Rich, and essentially working through a number of consultancies, I saw where there was some low-hanging fruit on where I could potentially set up uh, a smaller digital agency with a bit of a specialism. And then from there, we've ridden an organic wave where we've picked up a lot of a lot of exciting business. We've delivered some fantastic results. And then recently, we were uh, given the Football Business Agency of the Year, uh, which is directly, I guess, in retrospect of the work we've done in the last year in football, where we've delivered a lot of commercial returns for many rights holders and brands. So that was about my first five questions that you answered. <laughs> um, look, look. <laughs> Doing you a favour. That's right, that's right. So when you got the award, the Football Business Awards Agency of the Year, did you stop and think how far you've, you've come and, and think about the ways that you've changed? And, and can you just tell me the ways that you changed, I suppose? I think for me going into these types of things, as a, as a business owner and those business owners that are maybe listening to this podcast will resonate with is that 
it can be quite a lonely journey running a business as a sole founder. And it's very much you, you go through almost like a wave where you have like uh, great highs and then you have great lows and you spend a lot of your time at this like middle uh, area where you're just continuing to push on. You've got a business plan, you've got KPIs to achieve and you're pushing on. So um, we never really look at the award space because it's, I guess it's a little bit skepticism for awards in my opinion. So, you know, it's largely driven by, uh, by PR and we've always just picked up business organically. So, when we were asked that we should we should submit for a football business award, you know, we did approach it with a bit of skepticism. We we saw so many agencies that were applying, and we felt that um, a lot of the other agencies were a bit bigger and maybe a bit more established. So I thought, well, you know, may, maybe I won't expect too much from it. But you know, we went to the awards and we 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 sat down and we had a table in in the front row, and there was lots of other bigger bigger guys there like Octagon, um, who had been around for, for forever. They you know they read out the the bronze and then they gave that out and silver and I thought well here we go we've not even got bronze or silver we're going to look like idiots and then they read us out as, as the winner so it was a fantastic achievement to achieve and I think after reflecting after that um, the feedback that we got from the judges which it was sent through was that uh, it was refreshing to see an agency so so transparent in the way that they both generate revenues for their clients and report back on on performance so that was kind of a, a bit of a a wake-up call, I think, maybe for us, because we were always really confident in what we did, but we, we've always kind of kept our heads down and not really shouted as much as maybe we should about the work that we do and the results that we're delivering. So I think the kind of lesson there is, is, is that I take as a business owner is um, to remain you know, completely in confidence and have that belief and know that um, despite how the journey is low, lonely, and you know you might have lows along the way where you're not meeting the expectations that you set for yourself. Um, just remember that you're on a journey and you're doing great work, and you've got to enjoy the moments as they come along. So, yeah, so it was it was great to have moving forward. I think you know we're applying for a lot more awards in 2018. I think we're going to go in there with a bit more expectation that we'll probably come out um, victorious uh, in the end. Starting an agency, being an entrepreneur in this sort of digital space, it's. It's a fashion thing at the moment. Everyone wants to do it. We all listen to Gary Vaynerchuk. Mm. Yeah. He's very persuasive in it. What type of character do you need to be? Because you're five years in and there'll be people listening to this who are thinking, should I do this? Should I not do this? Am I the right type of person? So five years in, which is some way in, um, but it's not not too long term. What sort of character do you need to be? Approaching anything, whenever you're developing a business, you've got to have something that you believe that people will want to buy from you. That's the first, first, first thing. And you, you need to be able to sell. So you need to have a strong enough character that you will get rejected more often than you actually win business. So you need to have that ability to go through that rejection barrier and still come out, you know, feeling positive about what it is that you're selling. Once, you've, once you're all established what we consider to be a product that people want to buy and have a market fit where you say, okay, there is room for scale here and there is a, there is a demand that I can supply then the character that you, that you need is you need to have good leadership skills. So understanding that, that this is a long journey, it's not going to be, you're not going to uh, exit with a unicorn in six months, despite, you know, there are certain, you know, stories that you hear about of products and, and agencies that have turned things around very quickly. But, you know, in reality, you're going to be on a long journey. It's going to, it's going to take you, uh, you're going to go through a road of, 
quite a lot of adversity and figure out a lot about who you are as an individual. I just think you need to be a strong character that believes in yourself. You surround yourself with people who you enjoy spending time with and they're equally adding value to what you do because time is everything and as, as we know, there's not enough of it. And then you've just got to go about delivering great work. You know, when you're, when you're an agency, you know, one of the things agency don't have that, that, that other businesses have is a lot of IP. So, you know, they're selling services at the end of the day. And what I've learned over the years is that moving into a world which is driven in entirely by data and product and having a lot more understanding of who your user base is, we're moving down a, down a road where we are becoming services and solutions. And understanding that if, I, if any, anybody's looking to set up a business now, it would be, okay, what are the services that you believe are going to solve problems for your clients that you can deliver on in the short term? But over the long term, if you're looking to exit or looking for someone to acquire your business, how do you ensure that you create something that is, is scalable should you lose a contract? Um, what is it that you have that people will want, want from you in the long term that doesn't rely solely on the smarts of your team or the, the length of the contract you might have with a client? How do you pitch for business? Because that's always the hardest thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question, really. And if I, if I was 100% successful in every business opportunity we went for, then I'd say there is a formula we've created. But we have, as a business, we've, we've, uh, we've built a business plan that is about trying to get a, uh, a best-in-class case study from the eight areas that our agency really looks at. So, and I'll run through those eight areas. So we specialize in sport and sport is then broken down for us by, by these eight areas. So we have clubs, these are your Barcelona's, your Chelsea's, you by the way through to your Aston Villas, etc. Your leagues, then you have your governing bodies, you have your events, sponsors, brands who have a sponsorship. You then have brands that still create content targeting sports audiences that don't have a sponsorship. We have charities and then we have mass participation. So these are the eight areas where we where we kind of spend most of our time building up relationships and developing work. So what we've done is, is said, right, we want to have the top three in every category working with us. So whether it's a club, it's like a Barcelona, whether it's a league, whether it's a governing body, it's England hockey, whether it's participation, it's Ironman, and so on and so on. You know, sponsorship, Yokohama Tires, brand, Red Bull. So what we've done is we've simply said, right, we want to go up with you guys. Now, you always need to go in, if you're a new type of agency, a lot of these guys are well covered. So the challenge there is that you need to bring something of value and you've got to be able to deliver it quickly. So as a business owner, I may be in a position to maybe say, look, we're an independent. We'd love to work with you. Give us one of your, your biggest challenges and uh, you know, we'll try and solve it for you. If we don't solve it, maybe we don't work with you any further. So you know, we, we take on projects, whether it might be anything from yeah, sure, we need to sell an extra 10,000 seats to this, this event. Or it might be, can you increase our addressable audience on our CRM? Can you reduce the cost per acquisition that we are currently seeing on, on, on our product range? Uh, so any types of these, these business challenges that you see, we're able to come in and say, yeah, if we believe we can do it, we'll then take, take that on. So we're fortunate enough in a position that a lot of the people in the industry know who we are. So we can get a meeting with most organizations. We also pick up a fair amount inbound. So, you know, by developing 
uh, a strong enough marketing strategy that allows us to sit at the top of Google if people are searching for relevant terms that like know us. So we, we sit on sit on page one on Google. Uh, we have a good social following and we have a good newsletter as well that that um, has a good few thousand people on that list. So um, getting inbound is part of the process um, and then having a, a, a guy in, in our in-house, a sales guy that prospects and we simply say to, to our in-house guy, right, here's the list of people that relate to the case studies that we've got. Call them up, talk to them about their challenges, share with them the case study that's relevant to them and see if there's a, a way that we can help them. How have your clients changed in their demands? Because you, you, your opening chat about what we play do is very commercially mm-hmm. driven and delivering R- mm-hmm. ROI. Is it moving mm-hmm. more towards the data side of it now or is it still that hard monetization? Yeah, I mean, it's another very, very good question, very current. Um, you, you can kind of see, you know, when, you're a, when you take a step back from the day-to-day, you can kind of see from afar what's happening outside of sport, what's happening in Silicon Valley, what's happening in China, wherever the, you can look at mergers and acquisitions, trend reports, what types of companies are being bought, that generally sets the tone on where business is moving. So, you know, when you're looking at what's happening, you have to look at the business and figure out, okay, are we, do, are we delivering services that we delivered in 2012, 2013, 2014? Do we keep doing that, even though we recognize that a lot of what we do is somewhat commoditized, right? So take, for example, 2012, when I thought about setting the agency up and we officially launched in 2013, a lot of the things that we were doing were social media strategy, content creation, community management, influence and marketing. Um, and over time, you see that most brands start to pull that in-house. They're looking and they're saying, well, you know, I might be spending these day rates on this agency and I should bring that in-house, you know, and I can get experienced grads or experienced mid-20s individuals who are native to digital and social and they can do this for me. So they start pulling that in-house and the agencies, you know, they start thinking about, well, what do we do now? Do we go off the new businesses, keep selling the same thing? Do we, uh, do we pivot? Personally, from my opinion, I don't see a long-term business model in selling something to somebody what they can do themselves maybe cheaper. So we made a decision a few years back where looking at, let's ask our clients and let's ask, ask people that we want to work with or people that we've pitched to and simply not one in the past. And what is it that's the most important things to you? Often we came out with the same, hear the same answers. So take for a football club, for example. Um, if you take the football club and look at it as a pyramid, at the top of the football club is a, is a commercial model that's broken down by three areas, as we call it. So you have the revenue that they'll generate from the direct transactions, so ticket sales, memberships, hospitality, museum and tours, merchandise, etc. Then you'll have the revenue that they generate from the sponsorship, and then you have the revenue that they generate from the TV money. So that's a football club's, you know, and the commercial directors job there is essentially to grow those revenues across each of those areas. Now, which are the ones that we can directly affect? You can grow the media value. So a traditional PR agency, sports marketing agency, sponsorship agency that looks at media value as, as a direct form of ROI will say, right, if we grow your media value as such, we grow your audience, we grow your reach, your engagement, etc. then you can sell higher price partnerships and maybe even impact on the price of on for how much money you get from your TV deal. Now we look at that and we say, well, 
it's hard to really quantify. You know, it's hard to really measure that. So, and having consulted the PR agencies before I set this up, I kind of looked and I thought, well, I don't really want to be selling media value. I don't want to be taking this money from this client and said, telling it back to them and say, well, you know, this is what our exposure has got you. And if you had bought, it would have cost you this. I don't necessarily believe that's a measurable return. And personally, I sleep better at night knowing that someone's paid me one pound and I've delivered them two pounds. So we, we kind of set about trying to solve that riddle. And that meant um, really looking at how our retail media businesses outside of sport doing business. So media businesses work on things like the cost of thousands, the CPM and the cost of click and impressions, and they sell those eyeballs at a rate, right? And then those eyeballs can then follow down the funnel, and then you can track that user who has clicked on an ad, has seen an ad, and has gone through. And that's essentially what we call attribution modeling. We have to measure the journey someone's been on, and when they first saw the ad, or first clicked on something, and, and how long it took them to go through to purchase. So that can be measured. So you come back into the sports industry, and you look and you think about, okay, well, let's take, for example, these direct transactions, memberships, hospitality, ticketing, all the things that organizations care about, all of those can be measured. So we looked and we saw, well, how many organizations are there that are currently specializing in the sports space that currently are saying, we can help you solve this? And we didn't see many. So we pivoted in around 2015 and 2016, we brought on quite a few clients in that space, track cycling, bath rugby, European Aquatics Championships and a lot of a lot of organizations that were in that real, real kind of like, we've got a couple of months to honor our event, we need help. And it's like, great, okay, let's see. We blew them away, sold out the velodrome for track cycling and, you know, we started developing really good case studies. So I then hired a bigger team to help with this and we built that out. And then from there, we started bringing in technology. And then at the heart of what we do is now a really strong data-driven operation that allows us to really kind of understand what are the best routes to be able to deliver the, these, these targets, these KPIs, at the lowest possible cost for the client, which maximizes on the ROI. And these are the conversations and these are the things that senior business leaders in any business today, forget sport, you know, any business today, you look at Amazon, you look at Anything from B&Q, Curry, uh, anything from Apple, what they care about is maximizing return and the marketing budget that they set is designed to grow brand, to grow awareness, generate more leads and get more returns. At the end of the day, a marketing budget is a sign to deliver an ROI. So for us as a business, we recognize that and we, we go into businesses and say, let's talk about what commercial success looks like for you talk about marketing budget and let's talk about how we can deliver a return your staffing you, you talked about that bringing more people on what is your structure now your staffing structure now and what skills have you added at what time yeah this is an interesting point so agencies are uh, traditionally quite if you think of an agency it builds its it builds its client base it builds its contract and it builds its staff when it looks to sell it does so on a basis. We have this many people, this this is our price per head that is based on the amount of revenue we generate and, it, and you're looking for a maximum amount of output and a good amount of efficiency of the amount of people that you have delivering it that work based on and the return that you that you make, the profit margin, you have the difference between outcomes and incomes, right? So we see that, but what we've done is say that 
we don't need a lot of people to do what we do. Sports industry is quite project focused, it's, it's event driven, it's seasonal. So we have a core team of 12 full timers that are um, working across accounts. You know, we've got 20 clients, 22 I believe now. And uh, that means you have a, a core efficient team that can manage multiple projects. And then we have an extended family of about another 10 people who will dip in two days a week and there'll be anything from video editors, creative people, um, additional media buying support, guys who specialize in data science, data analytics, technical. So you have, you, so what you have is you have this real flexible offering where your clients don't need to pay premium day rates to get premium service. They don't need to, 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 to pay for the, the, the size of the team. They don't need to pay for a big glass building in the middle of Soho or Farringdon. You know, we're, a, we're an efficient operation that is designed to be flexible and nimble and move at, move at speed. You know, you don't get to five years old to work with the clients we do by, by moving slowly. You know, we move at pace. We are able to turn things around quickly. Um, we've got a, a data-driven operation that can plug and play immediately. You know, you just you sign a contract with us and you get access to all our tech, so we don't need to you know, heavy lifting. All you need to do is connect us to your webmaster, somebody who's able to implement a piece of code. From there, we're good to go. We can start harvesting your data. We can start allowing you to learn more about your audience than you've ever known. We can then profile all that audience. You can use it for anything from market research and media value right the way through to developing campaigns designed to generate a return. But at that, that whole operation is built around a solid core of people and then an extended family should we need to use them for any project. What's the best piece of work you've ever done or the biggest challenge you ever faced in a piece of work and how did you solve it? Just take me through that process. It'd be interesting to hear your, your thought process. It's hard to say what's the best piece of work because I don't want to pigeonhole one piece of work. As I said, we've got eight areas and these eight areas each have individual individual challenges, different objectives, nuances of the audience are very different, the data, the, the data, the behaviors are all different, the average household incomes of, of the types of consumers that engage with these brands and these are all different. So um, I'll give you a couple of different ones. So some of the ones we're most proud of are National government bodies, they get their money from lottery funding, Sport England, and they get advice from companies like UK Sport. So take, for example, like England Hockey. Hockey had a, a great load of success in, uh, in the Olympics in Rio with the women's team. We brought them on last year and we did some test projects. And we didn't know if we were going to be able to deliver against it. As we do with all test projects, we have a good idea of what we can do. We've got case studies and we've got data of what we've done in similar sectors. but when you work with a new client, you're always coming, coming about and you're looking at it with some level of risk for, for both organizations. So we did a test project and it was, it was great. Client was very happy and then they said, look, we've got the World Cup next year, so World Cup 2018. And they said uh, it's going to be the biggest event on English soil, Women's World Cup. Can you help us with a, um, a ballot campaign to get people interested into the event? Okay, so we set up a target. And, and this case study is on our website, so we set up the target and the objective was to both drive commercial returns but also to capture a lot more data. So essentially, um, when Sport England is, is, is assessing um, the success of an organisation, it's looking at participation, it's looking at facilitation, you know, rest, volunteers, etc. And it's looking to spectator growth, so people attended events. And that tells you the growth of the sport when you grow those, those three verticals. So for us, we're looking at, right, 
we want to grow this uh, this brand. We want to drive people to sign up to the event, to make a transaction, to buy tickets to this event. Great, we can do that. But we also want to attract new audiences, right? You know, it's fairly easy to take the data of the people that are already on your database, already following you on your on your social media, and convert that into revenue, right? A lot of organisations still struggle with that, but that's a fairly easy problem to solve. The challenge is when you say, right, we need to now find new audiences, people who have never come across our ecosystem. So to do that, you, you, you've really got to start digging into the data that you have. You've got to start looking at what are the behaviors of people outside of the people that you're currently communicating with. So we create a strategy that allows us to look at different different layers. So we call it the onion. So it's an onion which says like your core audience at the core of that onion, then you have a one degree of separation of people that are connected to that audience. Then you have a wider network of people that are looking for things to do, big events, etc. So the layers come out, and obviously the further you go out from your core, the wider of the audience is, and more people you can communicate with. But also, you have that challenge where if you're speaking to people that have never looked at this brand before, have never shown an interest, the cost to speak to them is also higher. You then have to apply some really smart data science that shows some what we call smart modeling. It essentially allows us to look for the predictability that the person at your core shares similar behaviors with the person on the wider ring. So to do that, you use some data science, you use some technology, and then you start to create some what we call lookalikes. You see there are 75, 80% similar characteristics between people on the fringes who have never been to this event, never spoken to the event before, and people at the core. And then you go to market with campaigns, each of those layers. So you have a core, core campaign, you have a one degree of separation campaign, like bring your friends and family, tell your your clubs about it, everything like that. You can then, anybody that's bought a ticket, it's like uh, invite your friends, etc., and get your ticket for free. And then you've got this wider strategy, which is about sell the experience, not the event. So you're talking about like days out with kids, people are looking at mum's net, things to do in London. You're looking at people who have been around Lee Valley before in Stratford. So that was a, a big strategy that we developed and the campaign was incredibly successful. So we ended up delivering 105,000 transactions. So I believe the original KPI was around 50,000. But what was really important of that 105,000 people was that 50% of the people that bought a ticket were new data. So 50% of the people that came to the, came and said, I want to go to this event, I want to go to the event in uh, London next year, never come across hockey's radar before. So that's a, that's a, that's a really powerful case study. It sustains that business for the future. It tells the funding bodies that this is a business that's worth investing in. And that's something that we're very proud of because it's not short-term, it's long-term. So that's one. The second one is the work we do with Red Bull. So they have this um, endorsement of Neymar. Uh, Neymar, the football player, plays for Paris Saint-Germain. And uh, it's called Neymar Junior Spires. It's uh, a five-a-side football tournament. 16 to 24-year-olds, and boys and girls can, can take part. We've been working with them since 2015 on this project. They came to us with the idea, we pitched, we won the project, and we built the whole thing together. So we built the entire addressable audience, 800,000 people following this event on social media, driving people to the web traffic, and then getting 150,000 people in the last couple of years to sign up and play for this event. So that's, they partnered with local market providers that can that can host the events, whether that's like your power leagues, your goals, that have these uh, bricks and mortar, five-a-side football pitches all across the country, and they partner with them across 50 markets, 
think actually it's it's 60 markets this year. We then work directly into the head office in, in Austria, and then we then develop a strategy. We develop the campaigns which then get filtered out to all the local market Red Bull agencies and Red Bull silos across across uh, across the world. And then everything culminates in this huge tournament, which has had in the last year 250 million people reach that we've reached. We've been, we've had 150,000 people, 18 to 16 to 24, take part in that tournament, and it's now become the world's largest five-a-side football tournament, and it's also Red Bull's largest mass participation project. So that's another one where there's not a direct, if you consider like, okay, so what's the ROI there? The ROI is someone be, somebody playing in that tournament, because that is the, is essentially Red Bull's positioning is about grow the brand, grow the story, grow that media value that allows them to say that we are across, we are influencing, and we have the permission to now directly speak to 16 to 24 year olds to have an interest in football. Should they be interested in energy that you need to take part in these events, it's likely that they're going to purchase a can of Red Bull. So that's their ROI. And then they have their partners. So you know, they've got lots of global partners from Nike to Snickers who will also now say, right, this is a property that we want to invest in all also because we want to speak to 16 to 24 year old boys and girls. So for us, you know, it's, a, it's another case study that we're really proud of. It's a very fast-moving sector. Things have happened recently, like Facebook's algorithm change is, is going to have big mm -hmm. effects. Coming forward, you've got GDPR. Are those the biggest two things on the horizon at the moment that you need to adapt to, and, and how are you adapting to them? Will they have an effect? With regards to the first one, I think, there's a, I think there's a lot of headline readers that read a lot into, you know, Zuckerberg makes an announcement, you know, they're going to focus on this meaningful post, etc. But... We look at the data, there's not been much change. So that's the first thing, let's look at the data. We've spoken directly to Facebook. They tell us, you know, where this is going to make an impact. It's going to take time, it's going to take time to culminate. Four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, etc. And then from there, we're going to then see again, we're going to monitor the data, we're going to see how it performs. Where we see that impact in is based on what other, uh, other journalists have written about and what Zuckerberg even said. It's going to, it's going to have an impact on anyone that's putting out really low-level content where it's considered to be disrupting the experience of somebody on Facebook as opposed to adding value. What we're advising, what we're doing is what we've always done. We've always created great content. We've always distributed to people that look like they have an interest in this content. And we have no interest in putting crap content in front of people that never wanted to see it. So for us and our clients, they shouldn't have to have any concerns. It's when they look and they, when those clients or organizations are talking about any filler content, they might want to create less is more, right? They might want to look and say, well, rather than posting 20 times a day on Facebook, why don't we look at twice a day? Why don't we look at the data and say that our audience is most engaged eight o'clock in the morning and eight o'clock at night, and we'll look at these moments. And the rest of the day, why don't we let our audience engage with their friends and family rather than maybe disrupting them with content that, they don't really need to know about it. So let's maybe put focus into, into the best of what we do. So there are questions that organizations need to ask themselves about what is it that they, 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 what story they want to tell their audience. From our perspective, our job is very simple. We are um, fully across all of the latest changes of any platform. We follow the algorithms very closely. We, of course, as, a, as an agency that does a significant amount of media buying, we spend a significant amount of money with these guys. So, you know, we do get um, we do get a lot of information back on to how to optimize, etc. Um, 
with regards to you know, GDPR, it's another one that whenever you see these these announcements, these these uh, industry changes, you know, data protection, you know, the agreement hasn't hasn't really changed since 1998, and it's about time. I mean, it's brought on, it's brought about from a number of things, whether it's anything from data breaches from the likes of Yahoo and Sony and people's data has gone missing, or it's a way in which uh, data is being used by media buyers and publishers and you're watching certain content and you're, uh, and certain advertisements are appearing that shouldn't be or advertisements are appearing next to content that it shouldn't be and all of these different things, right? So now the government and the European Commission are looking to create a new regulation. But we honestly won't know how it impacts until May. Right, until May, until June. We have put in place all of our contracts that are now fit for purpose. I mean, as a data processor that we are, you know, we are always following privacy policies, cookie laws. We always have data protection agreements, data processing agreements in place before we start any campaign. Everything is secure, everything is encrypted. Most of the data we use is anonymized. So for us, we're always following protocol. It's, it's really where we advise that people pay close attention is Organizations, maybe sporting organizations that have built their bread and butter off of building media value from their CRM database. And how have they acquired that database? Let's ask some hard questions about that. Where is your legacy data come from? Have your people opted in? Have your subjects, as, as the European Commission will call them, have your subjects opted in to receive comms from you and your partners? Yes, no. If it's a no, you're asking questions about what do we do with that data? Do we delete it? Do we then do we try and communicate back with those people and ask them to re-opt in, and which you've seen certain organizations are now doing. It's going to affect those, those, those guys. It's also going to affect publishers. So a lot of rights holders consider themselves publishers, and then you've got publishers like your Telegraph, Guardian, Mail, Mirror, Sun, et cetera, in the UK. So publishers acquire a lot of data, and then they sell the inventory on their site of advertising. Now, it's going to affect them and the way that they acquire that data, and it's also going to affect them the way that they sell that data. For us, what we're doing is a, you know, we don't own any data as such. We are a processor and we control data for our clients, but we simply process it on their behalf. We're paying close attention to it. We're advising where we can and when we need to use data, we're following all the rules and regulations. I'll say where the sports industry can benefit from GDPR is because of the emotional attachment rights holders and rights owners and event owners have to their audiences that they are going to be very, very uh, attractive to brands that when brands and their media agencies are looking at where they spend their marketing money and they want to attract certain eyeballs, they're going to be now saying, well, am I getting the same impact if I go to the Daily Mail knowing that the audience there may have, may have dropped, the engagement, the interest, etc., may have changed. Whereas I go to this organization, this rights holder, this brand, etc., sorry, this, uh, this rights owner, this football club, etc., They've got this. They've got this user's attention now. Now that, that's what we consider to be a sponsorship. Right? That's fairly straightforward. But from a media buyer perspective, it's very interesting. So you're now looking and saying, well, if a rights holder packages up its data and let's say that it has its sponsorship packages and and it's got top tier sponsorships that include all of the traditional inventory, boards, boxes, banners, etc. But then it's also offering. You know, a unique uh, uh, digital sponsorship, and then you can create a matrix and have clients that only want the digital piece. And you can say, well, I can now come to these guys like a publisher because they're going to have more data than than uh, uh, the other publishers, the, the Daily Mail, for example, which is going to lose a lot of its audience when people have to 
really say, yes, please use my audience, use my data. So the rights holder's got to have a little bit more control. It's, it, now it's coming to that position where we're seeing a lot of inbounds of organizations saying, can you help us assess uh, the assets available? What, what new rights can we create? What is the value of those rights? And we're coming at it from a different angle to what a, a Nielsen slash Repucom would do. Uh, so we're coming at it from the angle of, okay, this is what your data was you worth on the market. If you were just putting that into an into a an exchange or you were selling the CPMs as a, as a, as a from a media sales perspective, we're coming at it about coming at from with that angle, but we're also applying the context of sport brand, the premium level that you can then attach to it to then say this data that you've probably not packaged up before, other than maybe selling inventory on your website, is actually quite is actually quite useful for, for driving commerce for a lot of brands that that maybe not looked at you in that way before. So to your point, not really concerned about Facebook and that change at the moment, not seeing any real change with that. GDPR fully prepped for it, um, seeing a lot of opportunity for the future. We're only gonna know come June when we see what types of businesses are being fined for their usage, just advising any clients and stuff. L look at where you put your, your data from, any legacy data that you've, that you've got that you don't know where it's come from. Ask, ask some questions about if you need it or if you don't. The relevant strengths of the major social media platforms, presumably you deal a lot with social media, or mm -hmm. I presume social media is at the heart of almost everything you do. So Facebook, mm -hmm. Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, how are they faring? What role do they play at the moment? Because they ebb and flow in their various strengths. I guess it comes down to where you are in your journey and what you're looking to achieve. So we're talking about brand marketing, you would then say, right, I want, to, I want to grow my brand, I want to grow my market share and my, uh, my, my market penetration. And I, I would simply be looking at the audience, looking at the platforms as a route to speak to a certain demographic. So you might want to grow and speak to a younger audience. And if you're speaking to a younger audience, then you'll, you'll of course be looking at Snapchat and Instagram. If you want to speak to you know, a mid-20s audience obsessed with football, then of course you're going to be looking at Twitter and Facebook. So it, it, it really depends what the objective is from that. From a, from a commercial perspective, we follow the cheapest way to acquire the highest quality audience that we're going to be able to drive some kind of measurable transactions from. So we're kind of agnostic to platforms. You know, if we believe that above the line marketing and doing some outdoor or doing some print is good value for money, we'd use that. Fortunately, it's not good value for money anymore. So we don't use that. That's why we specialize in digital because simply it's more efficient, it's more effective. So from our perspective, we'll look at Facebook. <clears throat> it's got a fantastic buying engine. Uh, it's, got, it's got great tools um, and technologies that allow you to track everything. You can, uh, you can set things up and you can be good to go very quickly. So Facebook's a, a major part of driving um, any form of commercial return. Twitter. A little bit less so, you know, the, the cost to buy audience there is, is higher. The platform, the buying engine is not as sophisticated. Um, it's part of the strategy, but it's, it's in no way the leader. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's almost an add-on when, when you can't access certain audiences, you go elsewhere to buy, see if you can find them. Instagram's a major part of, of the, uh, the platform mix, and of course it's attached to Facebook. Uh, you get the exact same uh, buying platform, the exact same tools, technologies, reporting suite, etc. But it also gets you to a younger demographic, a demographic that's more interested in, in visual short form content as opposed to maybe a longer form piece of content. So that's always a big piece. Snapchat is, is still emerging. You know, we've, we've dabbled in Snapchat. 
you know, it's where if you've got marketing budget to play with and you want to create some awesome content and you want to create a little bit of brand affinity, Snapchat works in a way. Does it work for generating any kind of conversions? No, so we, we, we don't attach that to anything that's got a direct performance return. YouTube plays a major role. You know, it's, uh, it's a huge search engine at the end of the day. It's, uh, it's got you know, billions of billions of users, but more importantly, um, people who use YouTube are consuming content for longer periods of time. So you have a little bit more time to play with. The content that you can play with can, be, uh, can have a much larger impact the people that are engaging it, the data that you learn from them, it can be, uh, they have, might have a higher propensity to buy, but at the same time, YouTube, again, it's a little bit more expensive to buy that attention. So, you know, from a social social perspective, you know, you go through you go through the platforms, and depending on what your objectives are, you kind of come out with a strategy that, 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 that kind of says which platforms we need to use to reach our target audience and generate the best the best success for whatever we're trying to achieve. Just finally, where do you go with WePlay? What's the plan? Is it is it grow it, grow it, sell it, and buy Newcastle off Mike Ashley? Is that is that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think I'll be too late for that party. <laughs> I mean, if I had the money, if I had the money now, I'd, I'd, I'd absolutely buy it. I think that's a, uh, I think that's a bargain. If I, if I'm honest, with the the TV money and sponsorship sponsorship money available, you know, I've completely, uh, I've completely revolutionised that club on the inside out. Uh, what is the plan? We have kind of a couple of plans and I can't give too much away. We're going to continue to organically grow. We're going to, you know, we've never taken investment. Uh, it's 100% um, independent. We are continuing to grow based on the work that we deliver. So uh, for any of your listeners or any clients, that, that any potential brands that, that are looking to speak with us, you know, it's all about results at the end of the day. Um, we're a results-driven business. Talk to us about what does success look like for you, and we'll see if we can deliver on that. Um, we we have an ambition to to be bigger than we are, but at the same time, we are we are happy and uh, and delivering well as a small business. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the next few years are like for the market. You know, the the changes in sponsorship, the the attractiveness of sport to brands is changing. The needs of data, um, I'm expecting to see a lot of internal development of some of the biggest rights holders and how they change their sponsorship sales strategy teams, build out infrastructure. That could be a could be a longer process. I mean, when I was at Chelsea we started that journey in two thousand eleven and you still see a lot of organizations that haven't yet started that digital transformation journey as as, as you can almost summarise. So um continue more of the same is is probably just a short form answer and then see how we grow. You know, there's there's hundreds of rights holders hundreds of events every year, um, thousands of brands. Everyone wants to talk to this highly engaged sports fan. Do we, uh, do we pivot? You know, it might be something that we pivot. You know, entertainment an interesting area, music, video gaming, film, fashion, all different what we call passion platforms. But again, similar principles apply to how you engage sports. I mean, at the end of the day, if we can sell out a 70,000 seat stadium, you know, sell it out 70,000 person concert or 70,000 person festival or even driving more people to Jamie Oliver's restaurant. It's all the same principles. So we are looking at ways that we pivot, but for the short term, more of the same, keep growing in the sports market, keep delivering great work, great results. Where can people find you? So we play, it's uh, weplay.co. So it's not the credit code, weplay.co. You'd be surprised how many emails people tell me that they've uh, delivered to Luca at weplay.co.uk and it's 
all right? So um, you can get a hold of me, it's Luca, L-U-C-A, at weplay.co. And I'm also on Twitter, is I am Luca. So should anyone want to talk to me, um, Twitter's probably the best place to get a hold of me. Luca Massaro, thanks very much. All right, Richard. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Sport, Digital, and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, mrrichardclark.com. Mr.